Well, good morning. It is certainly good to see everyone this morning. It's good to be here. Good to be in God's presence. Amen. You know, one of the things that I have learned um, going through seminary classes and God having had me do this for a while now, uh, one of the things I pray about is, you know, Lord, when you, you give me an opportunity to speak, let the words that come out be what he once said and not anything from my own agenda. And so I spend a lot of time praying about that. And it's always nice when he confirms it. Um, what the pastor talked about this morning, some of his opening remarks tie in really well with what we're going to be looking at today. And, and I haven't sent him this ahead of time. Uh, you know, this, this is just a total, total God thing, how he does this. But uh, from the title of the message, if you guys have got that, you can go ahead and put that up. Uh, looking at that, it looks like, uh, if most of you are familiar with your Bible, that we're going to be in Corinthians today. And we're going to end up there uh, at some point. Uh, but we're not going to start there. And in fact, we're not going to spend most of the time there, but it's going to be related to that final verse. As I was praying about what to speak about this week, uh, God really cemented it for me on Wednesday. I happened to be in the car on lunch break, was listening to a sermon, and um, the pastor is not one that I have followed often, uh, and in fact, he and I would disagree on some points uh, pretty strongly, but the core of the message was really good. And the one phrase he made that really caught my attention and sparked this whole thing was he was talking about people and kind of comparing us to computer programs. And, you know, if, if you're familiar with computers, you've got your, your main program and then you've got submenus that you can go into. But it's not the main program, it's just kind of an add-on, something that you can, can put into it. And he mentioned people, and he mentioned Christianity as a submenu of people. Now, that wasn't his point. He was using it to illustrate something, but that phrase caught in my mind, and I thought, how many of us, maybe that that would apply to us? Maybe our, our faith is kind of a sub-menu. It's not really who we are day in and day out. And we get caught up with things in the world. And right now, there are plenty of things to get caught up in. If you watch the news, it's, it's rampant. Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have them on your phone, you can turn to, log in, download, uh, whatever you need to do. But we'll be in the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 3. Now, this message applies primarily to believers. You know, there are passages in the Bible where it talks about this is a passage that we can preach to anybody who's not saved. This is a message they need to hear. Then there are messages for believers to build them up. This is one that anybody can benefit from, but in particular, uh, believers need to look at this. Now, first, let's look at some background. I look at the books in the New Testament, and I'm always curious where they came from. What's the history behind it? And it's not that it necessarily makes for a greater revelation, but it helps to me to cement things together. Imagine if you knew absolutely nothing about American history and you read a story about the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Okay, you read about one isolated battle, but it leaves a lot of questions. You know, you'd want to know about, well, why were they fighting in the first place? Who were the British? Who were these colonists? You want to fill in the gaps so that you have a better understanding of what's going on. So, with the book of Colossians, now obviously it was written to the church in Coloss. This was around 60 AD. Paul was the author, and he wrote this during his first imprisonment in Rome. And I have to stop and laugh at that, because as Christians, we probably don't give much time to that. But the apostle who's responsible for writing the bulk of the New Testament, this was his first time in jail. 
You know, you think about that, it's kind of funny, right? You tell somebody, yeah, that was his first time he was in the, in the prison, but it's, it's good. So he writes this letter to the church in Coloss. Now, Coloss is located on a ridge overlooking the Lacus River Valley. It's in Central Asia Minor, so this would be modern-day Turkey. You're kind of over in that part of the world. And during this time period and time leading up to this book, they were famous for manufacturing a dark red wool. In fact, it was actually known as Colossinum. That was, it was named after the town. That's how famous it was. So kind of like uh, York peppermint patties, right? Sort of the same thing. They had this, this item that was named for them. Now, neighboring cities close by, Laodicea and Heropolis. Now, you may be familiar with at least one of those. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation, right? One of the letters is taken to the church of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea here was a commercially aggressive competitor to Coloss and was partly responsible for the town's decline. The three towns were destroyed by an earthquake in A.D. 17 during the reign of Tiberius and then again in A.D. 60 during the reign of Nero. And as the cities were rebuilt, newer roads were built to go to these cities. But after the last set of destruction, the, town that was, the road that was built bypassed Coloss but went through the other towns. And by 400 A.D., Coloss as a city no longer existed. And in fact, it wasn't rediscovered in modern times until 1836, and to this day has still never been excavated. So we know where it's at. There's never been any work done on it. So we're in Turkey. We're in a commercial hub across a beautiful river valley. Okay? So that's kind of the setting here for where we're at. And our main text we're going to be looking at is chapter 3. And one of the things I like to do when I go through a passage is I like to break it down and almost do it as a word study. Because Hebrew and Greek, particularly, has multiple tenses that we don't even use in the English language. There are a lot of subtleties to meaning that sometimes when we translate it into English, we tend to gloss over it. It's sort of the biblical equivalent of, well, you know. Well, you know, it's this thing. Well, you know. Well, let's be specific. Let's find out what we know and what we don't. So we're going to kind of go through this and look at a lot of, of definitions, if you'll bear with me, but I think it'll make sense in the end. So let's start off in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ... So right off the bat, we know that we're talking about believers here. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now he's telling us, as believers, here's something I need you to do. Do this. So that's pretty plain. Seek the things above. Now the word they translate there as above, they're meaning in a higher place, and they're talking about heaven. They're referencing heavenly things, which is a pretty familiar theme to us as Christians. We see that a lot in the New Testament. Verse 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, when we set our mind to a task, what does that mean that we do? We work at it wholeheartedly, right? The implication is that mentally we are disposed to go in a certain direction, not just willy-nilly. We're not just going to hit it when we feel like it. He's saying, make this your main job. Set your mind on things above, not your heart. And that's another important distinction. He's not saying set your heart on God. He's saying set your mind on things that are above. Not on things that are on the earth. And in the earth here, it's referencing what it sounds like. It's talking about the globe. But the connotation in the Greek is it's including the occupants in each direction. I've heard people say, and I may be guilty of having said this myself when I was younger and a lot less patient, is that, you know, the world would be a pretty good place if it wasn't for all the people in it. Has anybody else ever felt that way? 
you know, sometimes you just get aggravated. I used to, when I was a, a young driver starting out, I used to get f- so frustrated because you'd be running late or you'd have some place you had to be. And it's like someone was radio dispatching all the slow people just to get right in front of you. Every big truck, it didn't matter. And my dad, who's the soul of patience, he would just look at me and he'd say, well, you know, son, everybody's got to be somewhere. And my not-so-Christ-like response was, yeah, but why do they have to be here? (laughs) Why can't they be somewhere else? But here this is talking about set your mind on things above. Think about heavenly things. Don't pay attention to the world. Don't pay attention to the things around us. Now, in light of the way the news is today, this may be some of the best news that we've heard all week. It's saying, hey, don't pay attention to all this stuff. Don't set your mind on these things. But what rationale can we have? Because if you talk to someone and say, you know, I'm not concerned about pandemics. I'm not concerned about race riots. I'm not concerned about polarized political environments. I'm not concerned about world famine, world destruction. Doesn't bother me. What rationale do we have as Christians to make that statement? Because, you know, it's not enough just to say it. We have to have some reason why we believe this. And verse 3 really hammers this home. Look at what this says. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, when you read that, it sounds pretty self-explanatory. And most of us would think, if you've been raised in church or been around church any length of time, that when it says you've died, it's talking about, well, spiritually you're dead, now you've been reborn in Christ. But this is why I like to do word studies, because the word that they use here in Greek, it means to die off, it means dead. But the tense and the form of the word they use is stronger than the word meaning to die naturally. Because we understand that the spiritual things in life are greater than the physical things in life, right? We have that understanding. And we understand that everything happens in the spirit. So what this is saying is that life here is referring to physical life and existence, rising from the dead but only in Christ. Okay, be very clear about that. It's talking about in Christ, how we're risen from the dead spiritually. And in the sense of existence, it means life in an absolute sense, without end. It's eternal. A blessed life that satisfies. And the connotation here is a blessed life that satisfies in the here and now, not just eventually, not just one of these days. Life abundantly. So when you think about the things going on in the world today, when you look at pandemics, when you look at all these things in the news, ask yourself this question, how much do those things worry a dead person? (laughs) It's funny, right? Because we think, well, that's crazy. they're, They're dead. Nothing bothers them. Exactly. What does it say? Verse 3, for you have died, and your life, your abundant life, your life of abundance, your completeness, your satisfaction, is hidden with Christ in God. So right there, that tells us what? That we don't need to be worried about things that we see going on around us. They shouldn't bother us because we're dead. To this world, spiritually, right? If we're raised in Christ, we've died and we've risen with Him. We don't have to be so caught up in these things. And you can find this in other passages, and we're not going to have time to get into it this morning. But when it's talking about, you know, there's all these natural laws, don't touch, don't handle. It says, well, these are good for some things, but, but they don't really have any connotation to the real you, to the real life. Let's go and take a look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, okay, interesting. It's not just our life anymore. It's Christ, who is what your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. 
verse 5. In verse 5, where this is going to be an interesting thing, I'm going to say this before we look at this too much, because even though when we're born again, right, we die to the sins of the world, we're raised in Christ, does it mean that we're perfect at that point? I hope not. If it does, someone didn't tell me the right message, and maybe you need to see me afterwards, <laughs> because from the time I got saved, I've had issues and struggles I've had to deal with. It's part of a growth process, right? Let's look at verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, when I've read passages like this in the past, I've always had a bad tendency to look at that and say, why can't you just say the one thing? It looks like you're repeating yourself. And you ever been in an argument with someone and you just say, they're the craziest, most idiotic, most moronic, and you're just like, you're just repeating yourself. You're just all implying that they're, they're dumb. But these are mentioned for a specific reason. Now, sexual immorality, that one, I think we, we have a good comprehension of that from today's standpoint, right? Uh, we have relationships that are, are not biblical. Uh, we have a lot of issues there. Um, you know, things that are outside of what God designed within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. If it's anything outside of that, we're off in immorality. Let's just put it that way. Impurity here is referring to moral uncleanness. It's talking about pollution as opposed to chastity. So in other words, you could put in the word maybe fornication here, which again would apply that outside of marital uh, relationship. The word passion is when it, the, the term, I love this, properly suffering a passion. Uh, it basically means a strong lust, particularly an affliction of the mind or lustful compassion. Uh, you know, when I read that to me, that sounds like our modern adult industry, does it not? Evil desire is lust in the sense of physical objects, not just pleasures, but also for profits and for honors. So this is the people who have to have the title and they're willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get that job. Or they're willing to do whatever it takes to make that extra dollar. The evil desire. Covetousness is having more with the greediness that leads to more gain. So once you have it all, you still have to have more. There's that desire in there. And then idolatry is literally image worship. So this could be anything. Uh, it doesn't just have to be a statue of a false god. If, if you're spending more time polishing your car than you are reading your Bible, you know, you might have an issue there. Uh, if you spend more time following your favorite sports team and you don't give any thought to God, that may be something you want to look at. An idol is basically anything in our life that we exalt and put above God. Uh, it's kind of like that thing, you know, people say, well, I love God, I love the ministry, and they say, okay, bring your checkbook in and let's look. Because that's going to tell us where, you're really, where your heart is really at. The same thing, if you look at your life, you look at your time, where do you really spend it? That's where your priorities are at. Regardless of what we want to say or what we want them to be, that's where the priorities are at. And he's saying, put those things to death. Don't, don't do this stuff. And why? Because look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So again, the implication is back to verse 3 that you're dead to that. Right? You're dead to that now, so don't do this stuff anymore. And you, know, you may ask, well, okay, why, why are we spending time really digging into this? Because it gets a little tedious looking at word after word after word. Because here's the reason why. You know, the world has a loud voice, right? And as a Christian, we can easily find ourselves wringing our hands wondering what to do. Because the media in particular, uh, if, if you watch the news, 
it seems to have a current market on fear and drama, right? Everything is horrible. Uh, now, that's not saying journalists are horrible. They're not. It's not against any one person. It's not against the network. But as a profession, right now, the media's worldview has a decidedly negative slant. Okay, this is a world, if you turn it on, in which death waits around every corner. War, destruction, and famine are all imminent. And, you know, even the weather now. Have you noticed this? If you go to weather apps and stuff, even the weather's getting in on this. It's not enough that we look and say, gee, do I need to pack an umbrella tomorrow? I looked at this just last night, and I looked at the weather, I scrolled down, and I find out that there was, uh, let's see, a deadly building collapse after a heavy rainstorm. There's been five times the number of forest fires growing in Siberia. India is on high alert after locusts have been moving through. Tampa's hit an all-time heat record. There are dust clouds from the Sahara in the U.S. I just wanted to find out if it was going to rain today. <laughs> and I'm automatically bombarded with, guess what? Destruction of biblical proportions is all around you. Well, what's the point of all that? And I had to stop and remind myself what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says. And guys, I'm sorry, you probably don't have this when I threw it in last minute. But it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? As Christians, our fight is against spiritual forces. Now, the enemy is described, and I've talked about this before up here, as what? The prince of the power of the air, okay? God of this world, little g. It's an important distinction. Because he has been defeated by the death resurrection of Christ, amen? So he's a defeated foe. And that's something that we need to stop and really ask ourselves, do we really believe that? Do we really understand the fact that our enemy has been defeated already? Because a lot of times we go through things and we feel like, I'm suffering through this, this is terrible, it's awful, it's got a stranglehold on me, how am I ever going to get out? Well, you're going to get out by recognizing your enemy's already been defeated that you have the victory. You just need to find in here in the Word, what am I standing on to build my faith? What Word am I going to confess and say and believe that's going to get me out of this? It's going to put me where God already says I am. And it may be a passage, it may take some time. It's not like we wave a magic wand and, and instant results, right? The Bible tells us in this world we're going to have trouble, so we shouldn't be surprised when things happen. But we need to understand that we're not subject to it. We don't have to be bound by it. But the devil's going to try. And right now, again, the media has a loud voice, and, and they're a tool that he's using. And really, this is basic psychological warfare. I was very privileged as a child when I was growing up. Uh, we had a person who was from our hometown who was a four-star general, and he, he retired at the time and had moved back in. And I had the pleasure of meeting him and speaking with him to some extent at an event that we had. Um, but his, his name is General Carl Steiner, and he wrote a book with Tom Clancy called Shadow Warriors. He came up as an officer during the, the Vietnam era, uh, doing special forces and a lot of, of working with indigenous people, psychological warfare. Uh, he was the general that was in charge of Operation Just Cause in Panama. That was one he uh, orchestrated. And if you read the book, and if you study this any at all, one of the things with psychological warfare is you want to demoralize and misdirect. Now, would you say that it's a fair, a fair statement to say that in this world, that's one of the attacks that comes against us as Christians, to demoralize us. You, know, you, you look in the news and it's like, I can profess to be part of every evil thing in the world, but if I go into the workplace and I say I'm a Christian, and here's what I believe, that I could lose my job? How about that? 
can lose your livelihood just by saying, I, I think this lifestyle is wrong. It's happened. There's a lot of places it's happened to. Or as a Christian company, I'm not going to support these things. I mean, just look over the last little bit what the media has done to places like Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby. Look what they've been through. And then tell me about our freedom of speech in this country. If you haven't noticed it, I'm just going to come out and say it. We have a freedom of the correct speech in this country. And it's high time as Christians we realize that. Because it's just like the, the old story of how do you kill a frog, right? How do you boil it? You put it in the water and turn the heat up slowly, right? You don't just toss it in boiling water. But it gets used to it and gets used to it. And finally it gets to a point to where it's too much for it to tolerate and it dies. This is the world we live in now. And I don't say that to make you feel worried, upset. But it is what the enemy wants to do, right? What's his MO? Still kill and destroy, right? But everything that comes against us has its roots in a spiritual force. It's not the physical that we need to pay attention to. Why? Verse 3, we're dead to that. Even though that's the loud part, even though that's the part that stands in our face the most. You know, lack, oh my goodness, it's not in the checkbook. How am I going to pay the bills? Maybe it's some disease. It's, there's a pandemic, right? It's going around. Kind of scary if you look at the news. Well, as Christians, how do we handle that? How do we walk with that? We put our faith and our trust in God's Word the same way we've dealt with every crisis since Christ rose again. It's what we have to do. The enemy's primary objective, though, is to make us forget about God's Word. Remember the garden? What did he say? Surely you won't die. If you just taste this fruit, surely you won't die. It's okay. But the more time that we spend plugged into the world and its way of thinking, the more that we lay down the weapons that God gave us to use. We forget what our real enemy is we're supposed to fight about, and we spend our time punching at shadows. Okay? We maybe try to put more time into work. We try to work harder to get the extra money. We try to take tons of extra precautions to do whatever it is. Uh, we may not leave our house for extended periods of time because we're scared, we're in fear. Now, I'm not saying don't use precautions, don't use common sense. But don't use fear. As Christians, do not use fear. Now let's look at something else, though, with this. Because a lot of times we also get caught up with this idea that there's all this evil around us, and what can I do? I'm just one little person. You know, God has to deal with this. Well, let's, let's look at this for a minute. Let's look at this thought. So, verse 8 but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. A lot of times we respond to things that way. And particularly, now this one's what I was thinking about with all the racial things that are going on. If you follow the news and you listen to some of the arguments that people have made with that, you tend to get a little upset. Maybe at the injustice that you perceive. Maybe it's at the perceived injustices that people think that you think, well, that's really not the way it is. Everybody has an opinion on that. And I'm not here to espouse right, wrong, my opinion. That doesn't matter. But the thing of it is, if you look at it, the fact that we've gone from pandemic to riots, social distance, stay away from everybody, you know, you're... you're Killing somebody's grandparents if you go out to, well, it's okay if you all get together in massive groups because of this cause. Somehow the germs don't get spread with that, but don't do it for anything. It's crazy. 
And you have a tendency to get upset about these things. But what does it tell us to do? It tells us to put off these things. And who's supposed to do that? This isn't where we say, God, please deliver me from this. God, please help me not to be this way. You can ask for God to help you with the strength he's already promised you. But it says now you must put them away. There are a lot of, of, of people out there who say they're Christian, and what they kind of think that means is, well, I'm just going to go through life, and whatever happens, happens. And it must have all been what God wanted. I have no say in the matter. I have to put my hands off. But that's not what we do. I ask myself the question, okay, if I considered my life like a ship, who's driving the ship? Because when I look at these passages, God has the ultimate control over things, but he's telling me to do things, that I have a part in it to play. God makes us better when we're saved, right? You should be a better person on the other side of salvation than before because you're, you're new, you're alive now. But the choices that we make as we grow are entirely ours. Now, I love superhero movies. My kids will tell you, I love, I grew up on comic books, I love the Marvel movies, I love all these, you know, superpowers, and, and I think, oh, wouldn't that be great? But if you think of things from a Christian worldview, each of us have a superpower, and it's all the same. It doesn't seem flashy, it doesn't seem showy, but we all have the power of choice. Because the choices we make, right, lead to the next step in our life and the next step and so on. And by that same token, that means we're also responsible for our own actions regardless of any other circumstance. It doesn't matter what economic condition we find ourselves in. It doesn't matter what political environment we find ourselves in. God tells us what to do and what not to do, and then we have a choice as to whether or not we do it. And as I was looking at all this with the idea of what we're reading in Colossians 3, and I think about all the, the racial problems in our country right now, I thought, well, what does God think about this? Because if we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? It means God inspired it. Someone wrote it down. But God inspired the words... Let's take a look at this. It says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So what that's saying is it doesn't matter. Okay? When you come to Christ, when you become saved, when you accept him as your savior, now race, background, none of it matters. We're all brothers and sisters. And this has been one of my prayers, and maybe you can, if you're not already, you could put this on your prayer list. But to me, this is one, this is where the church needs to be standing up in today's environment. With all the tensions, with all the issues, with all the things that are going on, this is where we need to stand up and start telling about the message of love that God gives us in the gospel. My prayer is that for the communities right now that are hard hit, that feel like that they've had all these racial issues, this racial pressure, my prayer is that the local churches there will be inspired and will allow God to work in them to stand up and preach this message. Because the real answer to the problem here is obvious. If, if you're concerned about it being a racial thing or a gender thing or whatever, if we're in Christ, we put that off. Now again, it has to be a choice, right? But it's saying here it doesn't matter. There's not a Greek, there's not Jew, there's not Gentile, there's not, you know, you could say whatever. There's not this, there's not that. But Christ is in all. Christ is all. And then how are we supposed to act once we recognize that fact? 
So as Christians, since we have a choice, how are we supposed to do this then? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Now let's go back and look at this for a minute with bearing with one another. Sometimes when I read that, the first thought that comes to my mind is we'll put up with one another. That's not quite what he meant. When we bear with one another, it means that we hold oneself up as if you're holding them up against something. Against what? Against whatever worldly pressure your brother or sister's facing. We're supposed to stand there with them as they face these trials and help hold them up. It's to hold someone back from falling, to have patience with someone in regard to errors or weaknesses, to bear or endure habitually. Remember what was said? How many times should I forgive them? God, up to seven times? Up to 70 times seven. What was he saying? He said, bear with one another. Help them out. It may take some people longer to grow than others, but as Christians in love, we help bear with them. When we forgive others, if we have anger, if we have something against them, it means we forgive as Christ forgives. And when we forgive, we're to forget. Now, this doesn't mean we put ourselves out of ignorance back in harm's way and say, well, I forgave them. I'm going to go back to a bad situation where, you know, you may get hurt or something. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying that when we get to that place where we can finally say we forgive somebody, the memory of that holds no power over us anymore. I've heard somebody say one time, well, I forgave them, but I'm never going to forget. And my response back has to be to that, well, then you really haven't forgiven them. As difficult as it is to say that to somebody. Because if that's our attitude, we're not following the choice God gives us of what we're supposed to do. And when we hold on to that unforgiveness in our heart, it stunts our spiritual growth. We can't expect to be what God wants us to be if we hang on to things God told us to let go of. That kind of becomes our line in the sand that says, okay, God, I will walk with you this far, but no further. This is where I stop. And again, that's that power of choice he gives us because he loves us. And he loves us enough to let us be wrong and to let us make our own mistakes. And he's right there to pick us back up when we realize it. And prayerfully, with God's grace and mercy, we do realize it when we mess up. And he puts us back where we need to be. But we have to get to that point where we can let these things go and not let them bother us. In verse 14, above all these, put on love. Now, if you spent any time studying the Bible, you know there's different types of love that, that the Bible references. This is agape, and that's one you're probably most familiar with, haven't heard. It's the affectionate goodwill. Okay? Put on that type of love, which, what does it do? It says that binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the concept there is it means it's a completeness and a maturity. It's for one who reaches a goal. Now, a lot of times it's assumed that this doesn't happen until we're dead and in heaven, and then we're, we're perfect and complete. But consider, if we've already died, and daily we put our earthly nature to death, and we're all doing that, then we can expect as we grow to attain to this. And as a body of believers, it's not enough that we do it individually. When we come together corporately, that's the expectation. 
that when we come together, we're building one another up. We're bearing with one another. And I love what it says to, to do here. Uh, down in verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now that's twice. In less than a paragraph space, he says, be thankful. Now again, that's a choice. With the things going on in the world, it's hard to remember, hey, here's some things I'm thankful for. But it's like I tell my kids, sometimes they get into those things where they want to complain about all kinds of stuff. Well, I don't like this. I don't like that. And I've actually had to make them stop. I'm like, you're not getting up from the table until you can tell me five things you're thankful for. Go. <laughs> and you kind of see that deer in the headlight look. Sometimes I think God does us that way. I know he has with me. It's like I'm talking and praying about things, and he's like, just stop. I want to hear something you're thankful for. What's something that's good here? Oh. And I realize, yeah, I've been off on some tangent complaining and grabbing, and I can't do that because it's not profitable for us. If I'm going to let the word dwell in me richly, right, that doesn't mean just a little bit. That doesn't mean just a verse or two on Sunday and then we don't think about it the rest of the week. We have to let it dwell in us richly. That means we're daily renewing our mind to God's word. It has to be. Because the enemy's coming against us daily with pressure, right? I mean, like I said, you turn on the media, and this is nothing against journalists, but that's one outlet. You turn on the media, and I find with myself, I had to quit watching the news. I literally found that I was either getting very mad or very upstressed, distressed, very upset, you know, something. It's producing a primal emotional response in me the more I watch it. And I thought, I've got to get away from this. So what I do now is daily, because we need to be informed, I'll kind of scan through the headlines. I don't bother reading the articles. If I see a headline that really catches my eye and looks like something that's important I need to know about, I'll look at it. And usually I'll pray about them before I start reading them. And then I get away from it and I let it go and I don't touch it again the rest of the day. Now that's not, of course, what you have to do. It's what works for me. But I had to get to that point to stay off of it. Because otherwise it's a lot of fear. And if you think about it, if you spent 45 minutes watching the news and everything is, is all this death, destruction, all these horrible things, that's 45 minutes you've been inundated with things that cause fear, that cause despair, that cause anger. None of those things are helpful and useful to building us up as Christians. What if instead we had spent 45 minutes praising God, had our favorite worship songs on while we're singing and going about our business? What if we'd spent that 45 minutes reading God's Word? What kind of an outlook would we have on the day at that point? If you've never tried, I encourage you to try both and see which way actually works out better because you'll be amazed at what God will do even if you just give Him a little bit of time. It's kind of like the concept of tithing. God doesn't say give all your money. He says, just give this little bit and watch if I don't do more than you could do with all of it. Our time is the same way. If we give that little bit of time to God, you'd be amazed at what he can do with it. And if that became our focus and our attitude as individuals and as a corporate body, now we get back to it. I have a person that I work with who's constantly asking me this question, and it bothered me for a long time because when things would come up, he used to ask me, he would say, well, where's the church in all this? Where's the church in all these things? I don't see the church anywhere. I can't speak for churches everywhere. I can only speak for myself, but I can say in some of the things that have come up, maybe I have been AWOL. Maybe I should have been somewhere saying something or doing something more than I was, and I wasn't. There were plenty of voices saying the opposite. They were saying these horrible things and stirring things up. 
Where was the voice of reason, the voice of God's word that stood against it and said, this is not right? That voice could have been mine. That voice could have been yours. The voice wasn't there. And his question bothered me because I never had an answer for him. And you could tell he was very passionate about this. That was his response. He said, where is the church in all this? And I got to thinking, I know, and not so much here, but I know that there are a lot of churches right now that the message is kind of hunker in the bunker. You know, we're, we're going to pray, we're going to keep it here, and we'll, we'll try and do things quietly when we can, and we'll try and get a word in here or there and do these little quiet things, and hopefully it makes a difference. But there, there's not a lot of, you know, what are we doing to stand up against this? When are we coming together to pray about this issue? When are we praying about it in our own lives? And it really bothered me. And you know, I think that's one of those, now we talk about it, and it's like, yeah, it needs to be a call. So when he brings something up or I see something, now he and I have discussions about it, and it's like, yeah, well, we can pray about that. Why don't we do something about that? And maybe if it's just that small step, it's more of a step than was being made before. You know, I really believe that we are in the last of the last days. I think the time is short. And I think that when we look at the things around us, the natural tendency in our worldly bodies is to react to it whether that's anger whether it's upset depression discouragement fear whatever that may be and what's going to change it is when we actually use the weapon that God gave us and that's when we start responding in love in 1 Corinthians 13 right we begin with that saving faith the faith grows we have that blessed hope of Christ's return and it talks about the three things as Christians we have, faith, hope, and love. We have to have our faith. That's where we get started as Christians. That saving faith is what brings us to the knowledge of Christ that starts the process. We have that blessed hope of one day he's coming back so that we understand that for a Christian, this world is as bad as it's ever going to get. And we have that with the responsibility for, for the lost, this world is as good as it's ever going to get. That's a scary thought. When you look at the destruction that is all around us and you think to yourself, for those who are around me who are lost, this is the best they can expect to have for eternity. And yet we know something better. Maybe love can motivate us to step outside those comfort zones and maybe say a word to someone we wouldn't have said before. Maybe it'll encourage us to become more active in the processes that we have in place already, to, to have our voice heard, to maybe go do a peaceful demonstration at some point if you feel so led, of, hey, this, this is not right and here's why. Whatever God lays on your heart to do. My encouragement, though, for the day, and what I would do is I want to close the challenge. Whatever time that you would normally spend in the news this week, or the time you spend talking with people about here's all the horrible events, think about what you're, you're saying and think about the time you're spending and what you're doing. And instead, maybe think about taking that time and giving praise to God for something. Spend that time in God's Word. Maybe just kind of scan through the headlines, read a couple of articles that interest you, and otherwise turn it off and say, this would have lasted for another 30 minutes. Instead, I'm going to take this and I'm going to get in God's Word and read it. And then see at the end of the week 
how you feel not only from a spiritual standpoint, but also mentally. Because right now where we've been in, in isolation and quarantine for a few months, uh, you know, counseling businesses are, are going through the roof right now with people that need help and need discussion and need someone to talk to. You know, I think we should go to the great counselor. Spend that time with God. And then take that word and encourage your neighbors and encourage others. Because as a church and as Christians, if we started doing this, I'm convinced that a lot of the problems we see in the world today may not look quite so bad. There's always going to be trouble. And as we get closer to the end times, it's always going to look bad and it's going to look scary. But we have that blessed hope in God. And if we walk with the love of Christ and we walk with that as our motivation, then we can start to change the things instead of being reacted upon to them or being acted upon by these forces. Now we can stand up and we can take encouragement and make changes to them. So that when we come together, we can actually speak to each other singing in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever just walked up to somebody and you've been so happy you just wanted to sing about something? Maybe not. But that same joy that we have as kids, maybe where we come in dancing about something, we're excited about something. What would it be like to come in here on a Sunday morning and we greet each other that way? You're almost excited. You can't hardly stand it. You're bouncing up and down. Why? Because of the goodness that God's done. You're thankful. And you want to share with people what you're thankful about. You want to share that blessed hope. You have that excitement in you that you want to get out and do something. You know, sometimes I think we spend time praying, saying, God, just give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity to get out there and do something for you. I, I don't want to show up and be empty-handed. I want to be able to say, hey, you know, God, you gave me some opportunities. I got up to bat. I took a swing, and then here we go. I did something for you. And it's not that we do that trying to earn God's favor, but because we love God, right? We want to serve Him. Well, when I look at these horrible things going on around us, I think to myself, wow, God's given us plenty of opportunities. Now it's not so much give me an opportunity as it is, okay, God, where do you want me to start? Because it's everywhere. But we have to use that power of choice and actually decide to start. Well, it wouldn't be fair to close up without asking this first. We're going to pray. And as everyone bows their head and closes their eyes, I want to take just a minute because if you haven't made that first choice, if you've never made that first decision that said, you know, there's been something missing in my life. There's been this hole in my heart. There's been this, this empty place that I've been trying to fill. And maybe I've tried everything else under the sun and, and I just don't know what I need because nothing's doing the job. There's just something there that's missing. We need to start there because that piece is Christ. That part is the natural spiritual part of us that's reaching out for God. And in many cases, it may be desperately reaching out for God. And the wonderful news of it is, is that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, the, the things we may have done that are horrible or awful, or even if we don't feel like we've done anything that bad. Maybe we just have been going through life and we just feel like we need something else. That's Jesus. And He loves you. 
And He loves you so much that he sent, God sent His only Son, Jesus. Jesus died for you. And even if you were the only person in all of creation that was ever going to be alive, and even if you messed up horribly the whole time you were here, there is no mistake you can make that God's love can't cover. There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive. But God gives you the power of choice. You can walk away today and stay as you are. Or you can come to a knowledge of Christ and have your life changed forever. So I want to take just a moment and I want to ask if you have never made that decision and you're sitting there saying you're talking directly to me. I need to know Jesus. I need this fixed in my life. I can't go another day like this. Because God doesn't promise us another day. He tells us today is the day of salvation. Right now is the time we have. If that's you and if you need to make that decision, I'm just going to ask you to quietly lift up your hand. Because after the service, I want to pray with you. And I want to introduce you to the best friends you're ever going to have. Who will be with you through thick and thin. Who will lift you up when you fall down no matter what you go through. For the rest of us, I want to pray, God, that you would continue to open our hearts to your word, Lord. Help us remember that no matter how much the enemy rages, no matter how much the storm around us seems to grow, that your love, God, is greater than all of it. And that you've given us that love and you've given us the choice of whether or not to use it. You've given us the choice, God, of whether we stay wrapped up in worldliness or if we decide to make that decision to follow you even closer and step out in faith and do that which you've called us to do. To go into all the world, to preach the gospel, to be that light to the lost, to be that hand of compassion that reaches out, to be that person that encourages somebody when they're going through a hard time or that's going through a loss. And God, I believe you said in your word that, you know, we'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Father, there's a pandemic going on right now. Father, I pray that you would restore healing to these people. And I pray that you would let your church, your people, be a part of that. That, God can, that people can see it and give you glory for it. That the doctors would just be mystified and baffled and say, but how? This makes no sense. And then we can respond back and say, let me tell you about Jesus. God, this world is hungry for that. This world is desperately hungry, Lord, for an outpouring of your Spirit, and you've given it to the church. And God, I pray that we would take it out of these four walls and that we would use what you've given to us, Father, that we would start making those changes, that we would start telling people, Lord, that we would start being part of that process of change. We've read through the end of the book. We know how this is going to end. God, I pray that when it does come time and things do end, that we don't show up empty-handed, Lord. I pray that we can look at you and say that we honestly took advantage of the opportunities you gave us and that we did what you asked us to do. Lord, please be with us as we leave this place today. Keep us safe. Continue to protect us, Father, from all attacks of the enemy, as your word promises that you'll do. Bring us back together, Lord, at the next opportunity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.